Hi, it's Mo Berry with the WIHI team. We recognize that our friends and colleagues in health professions are deeply affected by the current pandemic. We have been hearing directly from our partners about the unique pressures, shortages, and impacts this crisis is generating daily. IHI is working hard to determine how we can best help everyone in the global health and healthcare community. If there's anything we can do to help, please let us know. In the meantime, we hope WIHI and this community bring you knowledge, confidence, and comfort in this unprecedented time. Now, here's WIHI. All quality improvement in health and healthcare shares the goal of standardizing best practices and ensuring that staff have the skills, resources, and capability to reliably implement proven and better ways of delivering care. That's especially true during a crisis like the one we're in now with COVID-19. A hallmark of QI is also the need to constantly learn from implementation with a focus on the experiences of real people in real settings and to look ahead to where improvements may be needed next most. All this is now happening in triple time. To meet this uh, unbelievable and unprecedented challenge, we're going to need to to be creative and to innovate. uh, As we are now seeing, we're seeing innovation from all corners, I'd say, in extremely accelerated timelines. So you're absolutely right. What used to be thought of as a as a pretty quick process at IHI of 90-day innovation cycles now seems like you know eternity when people are innovating minute to minute, hour to hour, and certainly day by day. That's Dr. Kedar Mate, IHI's Chief Innovation and Education Officer. He's definitely the right person to turn to to connect the dots right now on this edition of WIHI. And I do want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show, also a podcast from IHI. And we're available on IHI.org and on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, as well as IHI's Director of Communications. I want to say a big welcome to you, Kadar. Um, I know I'm home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I suspect you're home in Virginia. I think that's right. And, you got it. Okay. And we're talking over Skype, and that's just one of the many ways millions of people are staying connected the past few weeks. So thank you very much uh, for being willing to see if we can make some connections here around innovation sort of at a warp speed um, and uh, all that's happening with uh, COVID-19. So for I thought we'd start with, you know, the sort of foundational thing at IHI that you've been so central to. For at least over a decade, I think, IHI has had a robust R&D process. It's been anchored by a structured series of 90-day cycles to identify pain points in the field of improvement, explore some new strategies that can help. 90 days now seems like a lifetime, given what's needed to fight this pandemic quickly, so there's no time to waste. What does it mean to innovate, improve, solve problems like the ones we're confronting, as I said, at warp speed? Thanks, Madge. Uh, it's great to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you during this uh, uh, really challenging moment in our 
in our healthcare history, in our national and global history. Um, and this is uh, to meet this uh, unbelievable and unprecedented challenge, we're going to need to to be creative and to innovate, uh, as we are now seeing. We're seeing innovation from all corners, I'd say, in extremely accelerated timelines. So you're absolutely right. What used to be thought of as a as a pretty quick process at IHI of 90-day innovation cycles now seems like you know eternity when people are innovating minute to minute, hour to hour, and certainly day by day, uh, in order to meet the challenge that we have uh, here head on. Uh, as you say, we've we've uh, spent most of our uh, history at IHI really thinking about innovation, you know, thinking about how to take methods and ideas from other industries uh, uh, and bringing them into healthcare uh, to help us to create better outcomes for patients and families and communities um, in our work. So we've, you know, taken ideas from industry and manufacturing, as, as many will know, and uh, sort of the original innovation of IHI was to take those ideas and bring them into healthcare. Uh, to try to develop the initial quality improvement methods in healthcare, uh, the initial patient safety methods in healthcare. Uh, and then over the years, that has changed with the, with innovations in population health from the triple aim, with innovations in handoffs and, and uh, patient-centeredness from uh, other things that we've been working on, and now uh, urgently uh, work on, on learning about flow and, and surge capacity that we're working on right now around around uh, around uh, uh, the COVID crisis, as well as innovations that we need to take think about, about how to apply telehealth and televisits uh, so that we can meet the needs that are presently being experienced at this point in time. In some ways, as we've all followed the news, there are just tremendous workarounds that we can't help but applaud um, for folks being very clever and resourceful on the spot and yet when you think about workarounds in QI those are often or have been some of the indicators of defective systems how do we think about them now yeah well i, I think actually the the crisis that we're experiencing now has indicated to us you know the need for uh, the, the need for workarounds, you're right, I mean, historically or when we think about workarounds, they're often a, a great place to look for potential uh, the you know, needs uh, of the audience, uh, the people that are, that are creating the workarounds or expressing a need in a workaround. And then, you know, if you can better meet that need through a system design rather than allowing the workarounds or rather than continue to support the workarounds, there's probably a more efficient way of dealing with that situation. The workarounds that we're exposing or that we're having to create here uh, for COVID might indicate in many ways the need for redesigned systems. So I have, you know, on the one hand, I think what's happening to uh, the, the movement to telehealth and virtual visits is a good indication of this. We've, we've had a challenge around getting reimbursed and paid for these kinds of visits for, for, for years and years now. Uh, with CMS's an, uh, announcement just you know a week ago that we can get uh, that systems can now get paid for these activities, I think that's creating you know that's supporting the workaround. Now we're I don't know that we ever go back from that. I think we we've now become fundamentally different. That workaround that has been uh, essentially crafted to help solve an urgent problem uh, is revealing to us a a big system defect that I think uh, in, in exactly the same way as the sort of the duct tape uh, around systems would reveal the need for something different. We're now seeing that at a macro scale, and I think the opportunity is is present here for us uh, as you know as we move through this uh, pandemic uh, to really think hard about how we want to fundamentally change healthcare uh, for the future, not just for emergency response period, but how do we want to change healthcare 
uh, permanently as a result of all of this. What do you think healthcare is doing well, even if um, one overriding theme has been lack of preparedness, but even thinking about how things have evolved with many of the issues that IHI cares about in terms of quality and safety, what might you highlight in terms of what systems are doing uh, pretty well on? Well, I think that probably the most encouraging and, and just amazing um, in many ways uh, uh, phenomena that's occurred here is that we are uh, leveraging our connectivity in ways that I think we've never seen before. You know, uh, today's New York Times, um, Berwick talks about the fact that there was a, a Facebook uh, group that was stood up, uh, you know, not more than a, a week ago or so, you know, about the uh, COVID-19 physician group that was set up and it went from a couple a couple 10,000 participants, physicians on March 13th, you know, which seems like an eternity ago to over 105,000 physicians five days later. And we're and all of those physicians and clinicians are uh, eagerly uh, talking to each other about what works and what doesn't work to help treat patients with COVID-19. I think we're, we're finding, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, this could be regarded as uh, a uh, you know a, a defect that we don't have the official uh, information transfer modes, but I think what's happening here is we're leveraging the power of uh, social media and network platforms to help uh, aggressively identify new solutions and help to disseminate those solutions in uh, you know a, at unprecedented speed across the across the system of clinicians throughout the whole world. Um, so I think that's sort of the first thing that I would notice as being a success essentially of this initial effort. The second is just frank technological innovation. I mean, I, that you know, overnight, essentially, we have a clinical trials group that's investigating new uh, diagnostics and therapeutics. We have, uh, you know, again, unprecedented speed going into the development of new diagnostic assays. One came out over this weekend that has reduced the time to result to 45 minutes from what used to be a multi-hour um, um, effort. And, and, you know, that's happening within the span of a few weeks time. It's just a remarkable, unprecedented technological um, advancement in very, very short order. So there's this social phenomenon that I think is worth congratulating and celebrating. And then there's this very exciting technological phenomenon that's happening sort of simultaneously in the innovation space that I think is just worth heralding. We've been talking about co-producing health with patients and families and communities and sort of struggling to have that idea really mean something as opposed to an ideal. And I frankly, I mean, other than I guess individual patients with certain health conditions and their providers uh, perhaps co-producing, collaborating together, I can't think of anything else which demonstrates better what co-producing health and healthcare means right now. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think there's, you know, I, I, again, I think that we have there's a there's the clinical challenge of COVID, but there's the the very personal individual challenge of staying at home, staying in place, and and sort of being a contributor, this requires everyone, right? It's not just the clinicians, it's not just the, the people who are uh, directly infected or affected, it literally requires every single person right now to do what they can um, within their you know, personal limitations to stay at home, stay in place, and to not have the kinds of uh, social 
or at least direct social interactions that we've had for so much time. And I, I, you know, I think that, by the way, I should say that this does not mean social isolation. I want to be clear about this. So nobody's advocating that we turn off uh, and don't don't continue to develop relationship and be in constant communication in the way that we are right now, Madge, uh, having an interaction and having a social interaction. But I think you know we have to co-produce not only just care, and in this case, we've talked a lot about the notion of co-producing health, and it's not just co-producing at the scale of the individuals infected or affected, but it's at the scale of co-producing with literally everyone, which is, you know, again, unheralded. This is challenging us to do something that we've never really thought to try to do before, but uh, increasing the urgency and the need for it, um, uh, you know, in ways that we've never seen. When we think about um, telemedicine in this space, um, what might you highlight there? Yeah, I think there's a few things about telemedicine that's really, really interesting. I, and we're not at the stage yet where we can kind of look back and see all the exciting Oh, we can't things. look that, back yet, right? We're, we're, right? we're right in the middle of it right now. So it's sort of, these are just points of observation at this moment in time, which is uh, not reflective of kind of, I think, what we may see in the next couple of weeks as well as telemedicine really scales and, and tries to meet the challenge. So the first thing I'd say is that um, it, what really exciting, when we put our minds to it and our hearts to it and our, our, our effort to it, we can, we can execute telemedicine at enormous scale. I mean, I, it's just, it's incredible to see what's happening right now, uh, you know, across the whole country, you know, rapid training of clinicians to both interface technologically, you know, and get the necessary equipment to do so, but also uh, to to prepare doctors and to prepare patients for these televisits. I think just uh, again scale and, and scope uh, that are unimaginable just a few weeks ago. Uh, secondly, policy innovation. I, you know, rarely do you see uh, you know policy innovation move as quickly as this move. You know, um, and again, the government is challenged to execute and to move things at a pace that they uh, are probably deeply uncomfortable with and have rarely done before, but it's quite encouraging to see CMS loosen the reins, you know, try to try to move uh, support to doing good telemedicine uh, along with other things, FDA moving to approve new testing rapidly and quickly. The third is around knowledge production. I, you know, again, we've got these incredible channels at IHI um, and others do too, we're not unique, we're incredible channels where Health systems are talking to each other about the practical lived realities of trying to set up these uh, enormous telemedicine services, trying to work on surge capacity, work on patient flow, work on uh, you know, visitor policies. I mean, everything, all of the operational challenges that you can imagine. And they're doing this through uh, you know, rapid cycle email and listservs and platforms to share and trade you know, best practices around uh, these efforts. We're seeing the same thing in telemedicine. How do we stand these things up? How do we make sure that patients are protected and clinicians are educated? Uh, how do we make sure that we uh, arrange teletriage so that patients can be seen in this environment rather than exposing them to a emergency room where they might, uh, you know, inadvertently be exposed to COVID, um, et cetera? But I think, you know, I, I'm just I'm encouraged by the the effort that's gone into this, the work that's gone into this, and and frankly, I don't know that we, as I said earlier, I don't know that we go back to you know status quo at the end of all of this, um, which you know God willing will be soon. But I don't see a world in which we turn back the clock on telemedicine. This has been unleashed and is here to stay. And I think the question for us is how do we make those televisits 
high performance, high quality, safe for everyone, uh, and uh, ensure that uh, patients that need to be seen physically are seen, uh, but that patients that can be managed through a televisit are 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 safely done so. So that that's that's the some of the scope of what we're working on right now uh, to try to develop standards and guidance around how to do that. We're broadly speaking, in, in an effort to respond in an emergent environment, we're moving away from uh, institution-centric visit, you know, sort of exam room-based medical models um, towards, you know, weaving expertise and knowledge uh, into people's lives on a more continual basis. Something, by the way, that we were going to have to do in order to manage chronic disease better anyway. It is just being radically accelerated by this emergency that we're presently currently in. And I think we're, we were headed in the direction of non-visit-based you know, seamless integration for chronic disease management and care coordination. Now we're, we're, the technology is certainly not the barrier. It's about whether or not we, as a, as a, the culture of our professions, of our institutions, of healthcare in general, uh, are ready to kind of move in that direction. What we're proving through this effort with COVID is that we can do it if we are, uh, are, are willing to do it. If the will is there, we can do this. Let's make a kind of a leap here uh, into the big concept of equity. That seems to be another huge lens and an important lens with which to look at this crisis right now. IHI, and you've been pretty involved with this, has um, been working very hard on equity issues uh, in health and healthcare through pursuing equity. I've been really amazed and heartened at the degree to which the public, in a sense, has risen up in a very big way and, you know, immediately kind of notices and points out where some people might be left out. Yeah, and I think, um, yes, so we have been working hard on um, making sure that as we do all of our work, really, we're bringing an equity lens to all of our improvement activities, improvement, quality improvement and patient safety activities. And, you know, this really came from years ago, we did a, we, we had a hard look at some of our work and we found that in some of our projects uh, on quality and patient safety, uh, what we found was that there were projects in which, yeah, the overall performance of the system had gotten better, but there was in fact the disparity or the, the inequities in the system were preserved or in fact at times exacerbated. And so that that really stimulated us to create the framework for for what healthcare organizations can do around equity, and that has led us to whether or not some of the tools that we use in the quality and safety world, M and M reviews, RCA RCA root cause analysis, um, et cetera, could potentially be modified to incorporate an equity lens as we go about conducting those mortality and morbidity reviews and root cause analyses and other similar, you know, uh, adverse event reporting, et cetera. Um, and as we, as we have studied those problems, we found that indeed we can. We can take some of those uh, existing patient safety and quality tools, you know, examine them from the perspective or, or examine a case from the perspective not only of the, the harm or error that was committed, uh, but also look at them through the perspective of an equity challenge. And it has led us to different conclusions, if you will, about how to solve the problem and how to prevent or error-proof uh, going forward. And I think that's gonna become something that uh, we'll, we'll see more of. Uh, and indeed, again, not to, everything sort of right now is oriented towards this, you know, this, this calamity that we're all um, going through right now with, with COVID. 
Uh, I, I actually think that COVID also will start to point up some of the inequities in our system and, and how we might need to design differently uh, for populations, individuals and populations who are, are at greater risk and who will need uh, indeed uh, different system designs to help solve for their, their present challenge. Okay, well last but hardly least, it's often actually the first thing um, I think we're all talking about and thinking about, which is the safety of the healthcare workforce right now. And, um, you know, people have gotten, at least in the people at large in the populations in many places, have gotten a really rapid education in what PPEs are, personal protective uh, equipment, and all these critical issues, respirators, ventilators, gowns, um, gloves, you name it. And... Um, hand sanitizer, uh, which we know about, but for sure, but boy, big time now. So as we think about, or as you think about solving the problems of supply and resourcing, is there anything that we might start thinking about with the safety of the workforce uh, going forward? Well, I'll say that the crisis has been highlighting uh, the healthcare workforce um, in in multiple ways, but it, it, it a lot of the focus has been around uh, the you know development of personal protection equipment, PPE, and the availability of N95 masks and other other articles of PPE uh, on a generalized basis. I think the other uh, aspect that's been in the news and that people are paying attention to right now is the 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 risk, the literal risk of developing infection um, in the healthcare workforce. Uh, there's the, the tragic stories of, of physicians and nurses that have been infected, uh, caring for others uh, in these in these circumstances. Uh, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that the healthcare workforce, um, you know, in addition to all of you know, the direct risks that they bear, there's also the psychological risks. I think of of, of being at the front lines, working 24/7, you know, constantly right now, trying to trying to meet the need and and do what one can do and, and actually watching a, a great deal of tragedy kind of unfold around them. Um, in the middle of all that is this is the idea that um, we have to preserve the joy and resilience of the healthcare workforce. Uh, IHI uh, for over the last couple of years has, has developed a ways of thinking about, about those things. Activating them now in the face of COVID is something I think that's going to be that might take some revision. It's going to probably modify and change and affect the ways in which we think about these things going forward. So I, I will say one interesting, you know, detail is that in the middle of this uh, event of, of these efforts, we were launching a, a, a an effort to do results-oriented work around joy and work um, in the middle of uh, this period, yes. <laughs> as you know, imagine. And uh, very interestingly, uh, when we went, we went to the customers that had enrolled in the event and had the teams that had decided to participate, and almost all of them said, please continue right now, uh, because there could be no more important thing to us, uh, in, even in spite of all the other things that are uh, in, important, than the preservation of the, of the psychological state of our workforce. So I think, you know, you know, increasingly, you know, we're going to, we're going to need to, um, uh, there's no way that our workforce is going to be to help others uh, unless it can be healthy itself. And so I think we're, we're, we'll continue to focus our energies in that direction. We'll continue to develop, I think, uh, new ways of addressing uh, joy, resilience, uh, safety of the workforce, um, both physically, physical safety as well as psychological safety. 
Well, Kadar, it's great to talk with you and learn from you, uh, especially under these extraordinary circumstances. I hope we do it again soon. Thanks for taking the time to share some of your reflections and observations right now. Of course. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Kedar Mate is IHI's Chief Innovation and Education Officer. He's also a research professor at Weill Cornell Medical College. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks for listening to WIHI. Designed and tested by IHI's world-renowned safety experts, IHI's Patient Safety Toolkit includes documents on improving teamwork and communication, tools to help you understand the underlying issues that can cause errors, and valuable guidance about how to create and maintain reliable systems. To learn more and to download this free toolkit, head to IHI.org.